This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. It's 6am in a Sydney pub, and all eyes are on the Socceroos, facing off against France. The FIFA World Cup is one of the most watched sporting events in the world. And this week, people are watching it in living rooms, public parks, stadiums and pubs, like this one, where fans are really excited to see the Socceroos play on the world stage. So it's been good fun. Love footy, love soccer, whatever. But I'm just here to support Aussie. Yeah, 100%. Are you going to wake up for the other matches? Mate, of course. But this cup has been incredibly divisive. I was so conflicted up until Sunday night when the World Cup was just about to start. And I decided I just couldn't do it. I mean, I can't watch it. I'm, I'm, I'm footy mad and it sucks, but some things are just more important than sport. The mistreatment of LGBTQ plus people and migrant workers in the host country, Qatar, has provoked international backlash with protests around the world, players and fans speaking out, and entire cities like Paris boycotting, refusing to publicly air the games. Today, Guardian Australia's deputy sports editor, Emma Kemp, reports from Qatar about the dark side of the 2022 World Cup and the road ahead for the Socceroos. It's Thursday, the 24th of November. show going on at the moment. Um, Plenty of people in the stadium. There's got a a small Aussie contingent behind one of the goals. Um, They've been quite vocal when they were reading the names of the players out. Um, Personally, I'm, to be honest, I'm feeling a little nervous. Hello, Emma. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? What time is it there? It is... Two minutes to five. No. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, Emma, when I woke up on Wednesday, I checked the Guardian Live blog as the first thing and I saw that the Socceroos were neck and neck with France, which I was really not expecting. Can you tell me about this game <laughs> and how it unfolded? Did you did you log on after the first goal, did you? Yeah, basically. I logged on at the exact moment that we had we were winning, essentially. <laughs> It was it was pretty wild. Craig Goodwin scored the opening goal and it, it was like it was a very nice goal, very nice team goal. So we were sitting in the media tribunes, which is kind of it's on the halfway line far up in the stands and I could just feel I mean I could I was surrounded by Australian journalists who were who were kind of losing it a little bit, but I was also you could see international journalists kind of you know their their eyes kind of pricked up and they were a bit shocked by what they'd seen. Mm. Just especially, especially against a you know a country like France, the defending champions, that was obviously the high point of this match. Um, it kind of went downhill after that. Um, there were 18 beautiful minutes where Australia were leading France, and then a defensive error, uh, one of a few 
meant that they equalised and pretty much after that they were really chasing. No one really expected uh, Australia to win this match and they probably expected a heavy loss and pretty much played out exactly as we thought. Emma, can you tell me a bit more about the Socceroos as a team? So this team is quite young. It's quite inexperienced. Um, The last World Cup cycle's been very much a period of transition and about probably about half the squad has 10 or less caps. So there's not a lot of experience when it comes to playing on big stages and particularly playing against countries like France. In terms of where they're playing clubs, I mean, Craig Goodwin, who scored that goal, he plays for Adelaide United. So he's very much playing in Australia's domestic league. We don't have a lot of players who are playing in in top leagues, but they are a really young, um, vibrant, uh, together squad, I guess I would say. There's a very good culture within the squad and they've come a long way together to be here at this World Cup. The other thing that's really nice about them is that they're, they're a diverse squad as well. They're representative, I guess, of a modern Australia. They have lots of different heritages. We have a couple of Scottish players in the team, others with Croatian heritage, uh, Bosnian, South African, Turkish, Cypriot. We have the the three South Sudanese refugees in Awamabil, Thomas Deng and Garan Kual, who is actually just 18. So he's um, the youngest player to receive a Socceroos call-up since Harry Kuehl and he became in the first game um, the youngest player ever to play for the Socceroos at a World Cup. Mm-hmm. Overall, the match was... I don't know, it was kind of a really bright moment in what's otherwise been a controversial and dark World Cup. Right, there has been so many issues on the ground already in the first week of the World Cup, Emma. Can you just give me a sense of that and what it's been like seeing that firsthand? It's been farce after farce. Um, When I arrived here last week, the story was, you know, it was all about human rights um, and then it very quickly turned to some of the dangerous overcrowding, um, the FIFA fan zone. And then, of course, two days before the World Cup started, FIFA was forced by the Qatari authorities to ban alcohol in the stadiums. In the last 24 hours or so, it's become clear that the Qatari organisers were looking to put pressure on FIFA to reverse that decision of selling alcohol inside the stadiums. Which just put the world in a spin, basically, um, and sent FIFA officials and sponsors into a panic. And that's just this week, Emma. The Cup has been mired in controversy for nearly a decade now, and one of those key controversies is around LGBTQ plus rights. Mm. Can you tell me about the the issues that we've had with that in Qatar? Yeah, so same-sex relationships are illegal in Qatar. You can can get jail time for that. And that's, that's for what they say is leading, instigating or seducing a male in any way to commit sodomy or dissipation and inducing or seducing a male in any way to commit illegal or immoral actions. A Human Rights Watch report has also documented instances where Qatar preventative security department forces have arbitrarily arrested LGBT people and subjected them to ill treatment. Um, and there was actually a report in The Guardian just last week that some of those people were released, but as a requirement of that, they basically had to kind of act as secret agents and and dob other people in. It's really difficult. It's really fraught, and I think a lot of a lot of international media and fans aren't quite sure of how to go about it because there's this sense that 
maybe making a big scene might not actually help people on the ground. It might make life more difficult for them. So I think people feel a bit lost about what is the best way to help. How have these laws in Qatar affected visiting football fans and players? Look, so people from the organising committee did seek to reassure the international public that they would be able to safely display affection and be able to fly rainbow flags, you know, without fear of prosecution. But as it turns out, you know, we're only on day three of the World Cup and we've already seen a crackdown on players and on fans um, from showing support for LGBTQ plus rights. Several teams, it's been big in the news, were planning to wear the armbands with one love written on them at at the World Cup while they were playing, um, but they were forced to remove them. FIFA threatened to issue yellow cards to team captains if they were going to wear them. Uh, Harry Kane's been in the news a lot about that. So this unifying one love rainbow captain's armband, which both Harry Kane and uh, Gareth Bale were were expected to wear when they took the field later alongside the captains of other uh, European uh, nations. But it became clear that there was this potential uh, FIFA punishments uh, looming large, a potential sporting sanction. We've also seen a US journalist who was at the Wales-USA game. He was detained for 25 minutes for wearing a rainbow T-shirt. Um, The security guard told him that it wasn't allowed because it was sending a political message, making a political statement, Mm -hmm. and he was told to remove it. He had his phone snatched away from him while he was tweeting about it, and he was eventually eventually let go and allowed to wear it. And there were some Wales fans as well who had some rainbow-coloured hats that they were wearing. They were confiscated. These incidents prompted urgent talks between FIFA and Qatar on Tuesday. During those talks, FIFA reminded their hosts of their assurances before the tournament that everyone was welcome and that rainbow flags would be allowed. But we're currently waiting on a statement uh, from the Qatari Supreme Committee, the organising committee on this. The other enormous controversy that was first uncovered by The Guardian in 2013, three years after Qatar won the bid to host the 2022 World Cup, is the treatment of migrant workers. Can you tell me about that, Emma? Yeah, look, I think that just goes to the heart of what the whole lead-up to this tournament has been about, you know, that huge human cost that's gone into hosting this World Cup, into building the stadiums that, you know, I mean, they're glorious, they're resplendent stadiums, but the the cost of that has been enormous. And it's sort of, it's rooted in this kafala system, which is sort of a a sponsorship program for migrant workers to come here and work. But it's, it's proved to be very abusive for a very long time. And that sort of came to light because of all these workers who were coming here to work on the stadiums. A lot of people were dying. Um, There's a lot of dispute over exactly how many people have died Qatar has claimed it's it's as low as sort of 50. They claimed it was lower than that at one point in time. The Guardian has has written that it's more than 6,000. Human rights organisations say that that's probably an underestimation. So we have this, this situation that's really unclear, but what we do know is that some workers were made to work 14 to 18 hours a day and were uh, severely underpaid for that work and that 100,000 migrant workers have been exploited and suffered abuse because of tax labour laws and insufficient access to justice in Qatar in the past 12 years. Exactly how and why are these workers dying, Emma? Look, there are a number of different causes and that's that's part of the problem in, in actually being able to tell how many workers have died and from what causes. But we do know that a number have died due to the heat There were hundreds of Nepalese workers who died. According to a study, 
Um, and it's believed that those deaths could have been prevented just with effective heat protection measures, basically. So sort of like your, your baseline requirements. Right, so Qatar has responded to some of this reporting around potential human rights abuses and migrant deaths. What if they actually changed? So, look, the kafala system has, on paper at least, been abolished and a minimum wage has been introduced. Um, In 2021, that minimum wage uh, was $275 a month, along with minimum standards for food and accommodation. Um, In terms of the heat, particularly in summer, when, you know, temperatures soar above 50 degrees, they've prohibited outdoor work between 10 a.m. and 3.30 p.m. during those months. So, look, there are certain things that have changed, but I don't think that would have happened if there wasn't so much international pressure on them because I do think Qatar cares very much about Western opinion. That's what this World Cup is all about. It's about sort of announcing itself to the Western world. And, you know, that's that's where sports washing plays into all of this. But um, those reforms, while they are there, there's not been evidence that they've been implemented yet in any sort of meaningful way. So, There's still a widespread problem in terms of late payment of wages. Um, They've had more than 20,000 complaints filed to the Ministry of Labor in 2021 alone. Um, An Amnesty International back plan for a a $420 million compensation fund for the families of workers who died building those stadiums has been parried by Qatar. Um, There was a little bit of hope that throughout this, the actual World Cup, the pressure from international media, et cetera, uh, would force that compensation fund to materialise. But it, it, they've gone silent on that, so it's not looking promising. Next, the players protest and FIFA responds. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you're enjoying the podcast we make at Guardian Australia, you should check out the Guardian Weekly magazine. It's a roundup of the most prominent news stories from Australia and across the globe. And at the moment, you can get 50% off an annual subscription, including home delivery, no matter where you live. Just search for Guardian Weekly subscription to find out more. What has FIFA had to say about the fact that the country that they chose to host this cup has such serious issues with both LGBTQ plus and migrant worker rights? Look, FIFA immediately said it was very concerned, um, but there have not really been any human rights clauses or conditions concerning labour protections requested by FIFA of the Qatari authorities when they awarded those hosting rights in 2010 Um you know, it's interesting that the FIFA president at the time, Seth Blatter, has come out recently and said it was a mistake to award those hosting rights to Qatar, which is mm. which is kind of, a, I don't know, it reminds me of like a bit of a confession or something, kind of cleansing himself of his sins. But the current FIFA president, Ianni Infantino, has largely defended the choice of Qatar as host. And he actually gave one of the most memorable moments of the World Cup so far for the wrong reasons on the weekend, where Infantino gave this press conference where he basically accused critics of Qatar's human rights record of hypocrisy and racism. Today, I have uh, very strong feelings 
I can tell you that. Um, it was basically this 90-minute diatribe. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Where he just went on this kind of attack of, of everybody who's been criticizing um, this World Cup and, and everything that it stands for. And I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. And he basically, you know, said that he... He understood what it was like to be discriminated against because he was bullied as a teenager because he had red hair, which, you know, prompts all sorts of questions about how hard it was to grow up in Switzerland as a white man. And it, it, it was just, it, it was it was so outrageous that you, you wanted to laugh, but it was also so offensive that you couldn't. So in contrast to FIFA, football teams around the world have been speaking out about human rights issues in Qatar, including the Socceroos, who posted a video in protest about two weeks ago. Can you tell me about this video, Emma? Yeah, so in the video, several of the players in the squad made statements about human rights in Qatar and and they also included support for LGBTQ plus rights. As players, we fully support the rights of the LGBTI plus people. But in Qatar, people are not free to love the person that they choose. They also spoke about migrant worker rights in Qatar. We have learned that the decision to host the World Cup in Qatar has resulted in the suffering and in the harm of countless of our fellow workers. These migrant workers who have suffered are not just numbers. Like the migrants that have shaped our country and our football, they possess the same courage and determination to build a better life. They do acknowledge some progress has been made in this space. Whilst the reforms established in Qatar are an important and welcome step, their implementation remains inconsistent and requires improvement. But they also said more needs to be done. Addressing these issues is not easy and we do not have all the answers. We stand with FIFPRO, the Building and Woodworkers International and the International Trade Union Confederation seeking to embed reforms. And look, the Socceroos weren't alone in raising concerns about playing at this World Cup, but that statement that they made was really strong, really nuanced, um, praised by the Australian government as being gutsy and sort of led the way to the point that FIFA actually shortly afterwards issued a letter to its members telling them to focus on the football and kind of steer clear of the politics, which is a very FIFA thing to do. So there's been this whole thing of like, you know, this is this is a celebration and we mustn't kind of tarnish it with all these this negative media. Um, there has been this debate about whether players have a, a responsibility to speak out on issues. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I feel for the players. I think they're in a really tough position. You know, they're, they're, it's not like they've even signed for a club. They're just being called up to play for their national team at a World Cup, which is a really natural thing to want to do. And it's wonderful that some players have spoken out and it's understandable that others haven't because they've just been put in this impossible position. After a cup that's come with so many built-in issues, do you think that FIFA has learnt from this and will learn from their mistakes here? I mean, you would think so, but, but FIFA is so just nonsensical in all their decision-making. So 
I can actually see something like this happening again. FIFA is just ruled by dollars. Although I think I think even them, I think even they're a little bit shocked at the way that they've had no control over this situation. You know, FIFA usually dictates to hosts what happens. It's very much running the show. Qatar's very much running this show. There are millions of fans watching this World Cup and there's so many fans from Australia. I've been speaking to people over the weekend who are, have got their whole timetable scheduled out for the next couple of weeks to watch these games. I'm wondering what you've heard from the fans and how they're feeling about the fact that the Cup comes with such a high cost this year to, to migrant workers, to LGBTQ plus fans and, and many others. Yeah, look, I'm... I'm yet to meet really a fan who isn't across the subject and doesn't have feelings about it. Var- varying degrees of how strongly they feel about it. You know, I've got mates who feel very uncomfortable about what this World Cup represents, um, but there's still um, there's still a sense that you do want to watch the national team and you do want to support them. And I mean, for the for the team as well. You know, like I'm I've been here for a week now, and you know I've covered a lot of these these squad members for a few years and they're actually a really lovely bunch of players. Um, there's a really nice feel about the team. There's a lot of, a lot of different, different people, different personalities, different heritages and the journey they've been on for these past four and a half years through the pandemic, playing away from home so often, so much travel. It's a little bit magical to be here and to support them. And, you know, I could see that in the stadium when I was walking into the stadium. Um, I walked past several Australian fans. One of them had a Marco Tilio jersey on. Another one had a Jackson Irvine jersey on. When you got in there, there was like definitely a, a look, it wasn't the hugest contingent of fans, but they were vocal and they were there and they come all the way here to support the national team. And that was really nice. I mean, there's two games left in the group stage for the Socceroos. What are we expecting from here? It's going to be tight. So um, the loss to France wasn't unexpected, but it was unexpected that Tunisia held Denmark to a draw. So they're the other two teams in Australia's group. What that means basically is that the the stakes are heightened a little bit when Australia plays Tunisia on, on Saturday. They have to win that basically. And then if they do win that, then they can go into the game against Denmark on Wednesday, still with a chance, still with a pulse to get into the round of 16, but they're they're going to have to get two results. Emma, it sounds like you're going to have a few 3am, 5am finishes over the next week. I I wish you luck. (laughs) Actually, this is the only 10pm kickoff here that we have to deal with. So the others thankfully are earlier. Yeah, it's going to be so nice. That was Guardian Australia's Deputy Sports Editor, Emma Kemp, reporting from Doha. You can read more reporting on the World Cup from Emma and the whole global Guardian team at theguardian.com. We've linked to some investigations that were mentioned in this episode on the full story page as well. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Ellen Lee Beater, Emma Waterson and Joe Koning. Sound designed by Joe Koning and Daniel Simo, who also did the mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassy, Miles Matnioni, and me, Laura Murphy Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.